Hello, and welcome to Keep the Channel Open, a podcast featuring conversations with artists, writers, and curators. My name is Mike Sakasagawa, and this is episode 54. Today's episode is a co-production with the WMFA podcast, featuring a conversation between me and WMFA's host, Courtney Ballastier. Hey folks, so I'm very excited about today's show. It's something new and different, a new collaboration, and something that is potentially going to be starting even more new stuff in the future, and that's always exciting. More on that in a minute. Um, I guess one thing that I'm thinking about right now is, well, there's an interesting contrast in doing something new right now, just because, you know, it being the holidays, and this is a time of year that's always sort of steeped in tradition, not for everybody, I guess, but um, for a lot of us, and certainly for me. We went and got our Christmas tree this past weekend, which is something that the kids look forward to a lot every year, and we had a lot of fun decorating it. And I, of course, have a lot of fond memories of doing that as a kid, as does my wife. And there's something really comforting about that sense of continuity. But then, you know, there's something about traditions that is a little bit illusory, too, a way that they're not quite a real thing. Uh, I guess what I mean is there are things that my kids have grown up doing that my wife and I just sort of made up, you know, we just started them ourselves. Um, whether we were tweaking something from our own families or maybe blending two ideas together, or maybe just making something entirely new, but to the kids, these are the way things have always been. And as an artist, there's something interesting to me about that. You know, so much of my work and and really the work of a lot of artists that I know, it has to do with time and memory and how they interact with each other. And photography in particular often has to do with the disparity between subjective experience and objective reality. And there's something about this thing, about how something can be new and old at the same time, and about how maybe some of the things that I think of as foundational and continuous that form some part of the way that I think about myself and my place in the world, you know, maybe it's newer than I think. And maybe you could look at that and see things as, I don't know, less certain or stable than you thought previously. Or maybe you could look at it and think that there's something powerful about how we create meaning for ourselves. I don't know. I think it's interesting, but you know, then again, maybe I'm just getting a really good view of my own belly button. I don't know. But anyway, moving on. So as I mentioned at the top, today's show is a collaboration with the WMFA podcast and its wonderful host, Courtney Ballastier. Courtney is a writer whose work focuses on the intersection of place and identity, particularly in her native Appalachia. Her writings on these and other subjects have appeared in a variety of publications, including The New Yorker Online, uh, Lucky Peach, The New York Times, Bon Appetit Online, Food and Wine Online, Oxford American, New York, and Wired. Her writing has been anthologized in Cornbread Nation 7, the best of Southern food writing, and nominated for a James Beard Foundation Journalism Award and a Pushcart Prize. She's a board member of the Appalachian Food Summit and a writing editorial board member of Looking at Appalachia, a multimedia project examining the region 50-plus years after the war on poverty. 
Courtney holds a bachelor's degree in news journalism from West Virginia University and a master's degree in magazine journalism from New York University. A native West Virginian, she is at work on a novel about identity class and the Appalachian hillbilly highway migration to Detroit, where she's currently based. Now, I first started listening to WMFA this past summer when um, Esme Weijun Wang tweeted that she'd been on the show in the spring. Uh, you might remember Esme from episode 22 of Keep the Channel Open. Um, anyway, that episode of WMFA, that was um, episode 7 of that show, and uh, I'll put a link in our show notes for that. Anyway, that episode was really great, and you know I've been listening ever since. So uh, eventually, you know, Courtney and I, we got in touch and decided that it might be fun to put out a joint episode. And now here we are. And I'm just so pleased. So for longtime listeners, the format's going to be a little different, but I think there's a lot in there you'll find interesting. Certainly I did. And as always, if you're on Twitter, you can use the hashtag channelopenpod to join in the conversation. And now here's my conversation with Courtney Ballastier. I don't know why I'm a little flustered right now, but I, I'm feeling a little like a, out of no my, worries, out of my no comfort worries. zone. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, um, it's funny too, because I've been over the past few months trying to pick the like kind of level of preparation for an interview that I feel most comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So like when I was doing straight journalism, you know, I would have like reams of questions and um and I think that when, you know, I think both of our shows, we try to be more conversational than an interview and, an inter you know, an interviewer and an interviewee. And, and I think that doing that kind of kills the mood a little bit. I think you're just sort of like making sure your list is being taken care of, you know. So I've been trying to back away from that a bit. But then it feels very dangerous to me to come in like, so I just have some themes, you know, and it's like, oh, shit. Well, I can't I don't know. What if it goes? What if it all goes wrong? So, yeah. So I'm kind of trying to I, I think I think the sweet spot I'm I'm hitting toward is like, I'll kind of make a little quick list of like, areas I want to talk about. And then if I do have like key questions that I don't want to forget um, to ask, then I'll write those down. But but I've liked kind of relaxing into the conversation a little bit more and being less like, you know, feeling like, oh, my God, OK, where am I on my piece of paper? And have we covered this thing? And now I have this question, but we've already left that area. And how do I go back to it? It just kind of makes everything easier. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I, I always sort of started with the idea of being um, you know, I never really wanted to go the full, uh, Larry King, not prepare at all kind of thing. Totally. But, um, but I always sort of, um, what you're describing is basically what I do that I sort of have some general ideas, but I think for me, you know, what I find is that, uh, since everybody that I talk to is somebody that I'm genuinely interested in that, um, that most people sort of respond pretty well to, like, if you're actually curious and interested in them, that most people, um, sort of want to meet you at, at that point. Um, yeah, I, I think that's true. Yeah. I think the, the thing for, <laughs> for this particular, uh, conversation is just that since I, I, I sort of have settled into a routine where, um, where I kind of know what my role in the conversation is going to be sort of to sort of get things rolling and then, you know, follow any thread as far as it goes. But then eventually it'll peter out and, and, and I know that I'm going to be the one to, to sort of 
help things along a little bit, but right. um, <laughs> it's a, it's sort of a, a different um, feeling when you're on the other side of the, uh, the uh, table, I guess. I'm yeah. <laughs> have you yeah, ever... it's like we're, we're dancing and nobody knows who's leading. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Have you ever been a guest on, on, on someone else's podcast before? I, I was once. Um, there is a woman named Janae Libby who I know through uh, a lot of my nonfiction work is about Appalachia and specifically uh, about food and food culture in Appalachia. And, and so she and I are both a part of an organization called the Appalachian Food Summit. And Janae has a podcast called Edacious, mm. I believe. Uh, and she's based out of Charlottesville. So she often is talking to local or regional um, food producers and, and food professionals in her area. Um, but she recorded a couple interviews at this uh, Appalachian Food Summit conference that we had. And so I talked to her and it was it's very nerve-wracking <laughs> I spent like <laughs> weeks afterward like being afraid that I had like said this one thing that was going to come off weird and like then I listened to it and I made my husband listen to it and like watched his face intently as he was listening <laughs> to it and he was like I this is not a thing but he's kind of used to me overreacting about anxieties like that so yeah it's sort of funny you know I I know for myself um when I told people in my family that I was doing a podcast um, and especially like an interview, interview-ish podcast, a lot mm -hmm. of them were very surprised because, you know, in my personal life, I'm often very reserved and quiet. Um, mm -hmm. and so something that would involve me talking a lot didn't, didn't really seem, uh, natural. Uh, it's something that I've always, I've been sort of surprised that, um, that it has come as easily as it has. Like, I, I mean, I know the first, like, I don't know, maybe a couple, three months, I was very nervous at it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you go back and listen to some of the older episodes of Keep the Channel Open, that it it uh, it shows. Oh, um, I'm sure that's true for me, too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I mean, Do you, you find that it makes a difference, though, like that you're talking about something, you know, things that you're passionate about? I think I think kind of even, you know, because I would describe that, I, I always describe myself as like an extroverted introvert, but I do think my kind of natural state is to just sort of like, be left alone with my books. <laughs> but then when I'm when I'm talking about books, and I'm talking about writing, I can get really animated about that. Yeah, uh, I think it's sort of um, finding a sweet spot for me, because I, I remember I was reading this, this um, article about introverts uh, a couple years ago, and, and it was talking about how there's sort of a misconception that introverts just generally don't like to talk at all. Right. Um, but that rather it's, it's, it's often that introverts have this real dread of, um, small talk and forced conversation. Yeah. But that if it's something where you can, you know, where it's something that you actually really care about and you're passionate about and you can have sort of a, a more detailed and, 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 um, you know, a deep conversation, that that is the kind of thing where we can actually find a lot of charge in that and, and sort of gain energy rather than spend it. Um, yeah. And I definitely find that's the case. Yeah, same. And I, I'm definitely always to that, like, like at parties, like I kind of always end up just having like really intense conversations with one person in a corner, you know, <laughs> like that, that really rings true for me. And I actually, have you read this book, Quiet by Susan Cain? No. It's really interesting. I read it. Um, I read it just uh, within the last couple of months, but I think it's a couple years old now. Um, but it, it, so it kind of has a little bit of a like pop psychology spin and that I think the subtitle is like the power of 
introverts in a world that can't stop talking or something like that, you know, but, uh, but it is a really fascinating reading experience to just sort of see yourself described in ways that like you couldn't actually pinpoint, like, you know, or maybe I couldn't at least, you know, I hadn't necessarily, I couldn't have like articulated these qualities about myself, but I read them and then I was like, oh my God, yeah, that's so accurate. Yeah. I think in some ways that sort of feeling of, um, of, of seeing yourself in, in either in written word or, or some aspect of yourself in, in visual arts or whatever is sort of what I'm always looking for, mm. you know, as an audience member. Um, and it's, and in my, in my personal work as well, it's something that I'm always sort of trying, hoping that I can provide for my audience, um, such as it is, uh, that, that I, I mean, I'm I'm always on about this on on the show that you know art is a communicative medium, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know there's there's this way that that it can you know that we're all always locked in our heads all the time and we never really know what anybody else is thinking and so when you can have that little moment of recognition that it makes you feel a little bit less alone um, and I guess that that feeling is sort of my heroine you know right right <laughs> yeah um, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Especially like if you, you know, like you said, when you're in your head so much and just thinking like, well, is this, is this particular way in which I feel like a crazy person, you know, unique to me. (laughs) And then whenever it's sort of, whenever that kind of boundary opens up a little bit, you're like, oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what are you working on right now? I, I, I feel like we, uh, we don't get to talk about our own stuff a lot on our shows. Yeah. Um, so it's funny. I, I, uh, I'm sort of in between projects at the moment. Um, I had, I had intended to take 2017 as sort of a break from photography Mm. and concentrate on writing this year. I had a goal of having four pieces published in paying markets. Um, and so far I've had one, but that's mostly because I've got so distracted with political activism that mm. I don't know if distracted mm. is quite the right word, but it's just sort of, I got busy with other things yeah. and haven't had time yeah. to work on my own stuff. Um, but I think, you know, right now, um, they always say the, the tough part, uh, I don't know if this is true for writers to quite the same degree as it is for photographers, but, um, but for for photographers, and I think it's like particularly photographers among visual artists, because when like you'll be working on the thing and then you'll be done with the thing, and then you kind of have to spend a certain amount of time trying to push the thing out into the world. Um, but there isn't like you know there isn't necessarily a straightforward way of getting your work out there. Um, with with publishing, there's sort of not to say that it's easy, but just that there's sort of, I think, an understood way of, you mm-hmm. know, submitting things. And there's like a system in place. Right. Um, but with photography, it's sort of, um, I don't know, everything always feels very ad hoc. And so, and photographers, I think all artists and writers kind of hate having to spend time on on the sort of more promotional businessy side of stuff. But, mm-hmm. um, I have all of this work that's just sort of sitting around, not doing anything and I have to really focus on getting it out there. Um, but at the same time, I'm starting to get little, little bits of ideas. I have, I have a new sort of germ of a photo project that has come to me recently and I'm, I'm hoping that it turns into something, but we kind of, I tend to take a really long time on my projects. Most of my, most of the time, 
when I do a photo project, it'll take somewhere between two and maybe six or seven years for it to mm. fully develop. Mm -hmm. Um, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, I think that's because my, my photographic work is very personal. So yeah. a lot of times, you know, it's not like I'm setting up, uh, um, you know, scenes or, 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 you know, uh, still lives or something in a studio, I'm, I'm, I'm taking things out of my, my real life. So a lot of times I'm sort of shooting more instinctively and then I'll realize afterwards that there's a through line that I can sort of assemble a, a series around. And a lot of times I'm always interested in, in figuring out how to combine images and text, um, mm. so that I can sort of engage both sides of my, um, creative brain on that. Um, right. but that's something that's often a little bit, not just tricky from a technical point of view, but, uh, but I, I find that, um, people, people on, um, photographers and photo critics and reviewers are often, um, uninterested in text or feel the text takes away. Mm -hmm. And I feel like literary critics and reviewers often, um, tend to see the images as, as sort of unnecessary illustrations. Um, mm. either way it can sort of be seen as a distraction. So finding the right audience for something where the text and the images is very integral to the full completeness of the project is, can be a little bit of a challenge sometimes, but I think there's people out there for that. I don't know. How about you? What are you working on? Yeah. Well, wait, I first, I, I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm really curious by the way you described um, the process of, you know, you so you get this germ of an idea and then you're kind of doing this instinctual shooting. And is that something that you would maybe liken to like, you know, I've started to think about as I've gotten deeper into a fiction practice and started to really like kind of wrap my brain around what that looks like for me that like first drafting for me is very much like the reporting stage of nonfiction. Mm -hmm. um, is, is that something that feels familiar to you in terms of the way that you're collecting images for a, for a project? I don't know if you're necessarily thinking of your project and projects in narrative terms. Um, so I guess that's another question. Well, I think, you know, it's funny. Um, I was just talking to the, the, um, for the last episode that I did of, of KTCO, I was talking to, um, Eleonora Ronconi and she was, she, she were talking about how, um, you know, uh, how we engage with photographs. And, and I was saying how I really always want the, the story, the narrative, and that's sort of primarily how I engage with, mm -hmm. with everything, um, that when I'm, when I'm making a photo series, I'm always sort of thinking about it in terms of, you know, I, it's not exactly illustrating a narrative, but, but that I, that I have some arc in mind, some sort of emotional arc in mind mm -hmm. that's very similar to how I might construct an essay, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that is something that also lends itself, uh, for me personally, um, pretty well to combining text with the images in a way that, um, like I never want the text to just feel like a caption or an explanation of right. And I don't want the images to just feel like they're illustrating the text, but rather I want them each to be sort of doing something that the other one can't do so that you're making some, uh, uh you know, something that's more than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know to what degree I'm successful at that. Um, but, uh, you know, some, at least some, some of the time it seems to, to work out okay. But um, I'm not really sure how what you mean by 
um, you know, reporting, uh, cause mm. I have no experience as a journalist. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I guess I just mean kind of like the, it's like fact finding or like information gathering in terms of just like starting to, um, like, like when I'm, when I'm reporting nonfiction, the point at which I kind of know that I'm ready to start writing, uh, cause I don't love to write as I'm researching, um, is that like when the research kind of starts confirming itself and like I keep getting basically like all of the kind of avenues start to look familiar because I've like researched it pretty thoroughly. And then I can see kind of like this little universe that I've like learned about. Mm. And then it's much easier for me to sort of write. Um, Cause I think a lot, a lot for me, I don't know if you would agree with your photography practice, but a lot for me in terms of like getting down to writing that I feel is good and has some kind of like, you know, resonance about it. A big part of that for me is like getting to a place of feeling the authority over the subject Mm. or like over the characters or over the storyline or whatever it is. Um, And like, I'm dealing with that right now. And um, in the novel, there's a, I'm kind of reworking the beginning um, to be a sample for a couple funding things that I'm applying for. And like, there is, there is one area of the story and, the people involved in that area, I feel much less, I feel much, I haven't, I don't feel like I've earned that authority yet in mm. the way that I have in other areas. Um, so I think the, the reporting aspect for me is kind of like arming myself with the information that I need to feel like I know what the story is and then I can tell it. I kind of have to tell myself the story before I can tell it. Hmm. That's interesting. I think, um, you know, for me, I always say that I have, I have, I always have a really hard time with, um, like I, I often sort of separate artists and, and even writers into sort of two, um, sort of loose categories in my brain. And, and one being, um, people who I call explorers and the other being the people that I call builders, um, you know, where like, I think of, I think of fiction writing, um, and often poetry, I think of studio photography as being, um, people who are constructing things, mm-hmm. whereas, um, like maybe documentary photographers or, um, certain types of personal essay writers are, are, are more, um, you know, observing and, and, uh, just sort of, I guess, reporting on what they're <clears throat> seeing. Um, I have such a hard time with construction of anything, which is mm. one of the reasons why I haven't sort of, uh, to this point been able to get anywhere with fiction writing. Um, mm-hmm. and I find it's the same when I try and take photographs on purpose, a lot of times they wind up really terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna capture this idea. Yeah. Like when you're setting out with kind of like a motive. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. So I find that, you know, as opposed to like, if I were going to write a piece about, you know, something that required research, I feel like I would have a little bit more of an easy time sort of figuring out how to gather information on purpose to start mm-hmm. with. Whereas mm-hmm. with the photography, almost always I have to, I find that I almost have to be taking pictures without having an agenda. Um, and that what I'll realize maybe two or three years in that I have amassed a body of work that, um, that has a, a, 
that has a sort of a common theme that I realize I've been taking pictures of all the same stuff over and over again for a year or two. And then the trick is figuring out like, if it's not done yet, then how, how do I keep myself in a position where I can keep taking that kind of picture, but not do it on, on purpose, not force it. Right. Cause now you're self-aware. So yeah. how do you, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I was working on, um, a project that I started in 2011 and I finished last year. Um, and it's called, it forgets you. And it's, um, it's about my hometown, but it's not really about that. I mean, all of my projects are, are never really about the subjects of the photographs. They're sure. always about me. <laughs> <laughs> and what is your hometown? Uh, Carmel Valley, California. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's sort of, uh, near Monterey outside Carmel. It's a very beautiful area. Um, uh, in 2011, I went back there for the first time in seven years. One of the things about Carmel Valley is that it's not on the way to anything. Mm. There's only one road that goes through it and it doesn't really go. It's a very out of the way road. You'd have mm. to get there on purpose. Um, cause it doesn't really connect anything to anything else. It does, but it's like the least convenient way to get to, from one end point to the other. Okay. And, um, even though I have family that lives in Monterey County still, um, very nearby to, to Carmel Valley, I don't have anybody that lives in that town anymore. Cause my, my, my brother moved to the coast. All of my friends moved away and my, actually my parents, my mom and my stepdad moved to Virginia, um, mm. in like, I think in like 2004. Um, so I hadn't been back to my town in like seven years. And I just went there on a lark one day cause I was up there visiting my wife's family um, and I, she had, her parents live in Big Sur mm. and, um, and so I just took a day and just decided to go out there and I was just really hit by all of this, like all of these really strong emotions by like noticing how things were very the same, but also little details were really different. And I was just all up in my feelings. Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And I just always have a camera with me almost always. So mm-hmm. I just started sort of reflexively taking pictures and I, and <clears throat> I, I, I found myself visiting all of these places that, um, were sort of personally important to me, but that might be hard for people to identify, even if you live in that town, um, why they might be important. They were mm-hmm. just important to me. And I kept, I, I found that I was going back there maybe once a year and taking all of these pictures. And then I realized what, you know, what I was trying to sort of grapple with was that feeling of not being able to go home. And so then I, I don't know, I found I was able to assemble something out of, out of all of those pictures that I was taking over the years that, that sort of spoke to that and then combining it with text. And it eventually was realized as a, a, a handmade book. Mm. Um, and it, it, I think it works. People seem to like it. I haven't been able to sort of get it out. There's one problem with artist books is that like you, since you only make one <laughs> or maybe two, uh, you can't, it's a little harder with then with photographs to sort of get them out there to a wide audience, even compared right. to paintings where you have sort of a gallery setting where people can come through this thing that you have that people want to, you, you really want people to handle it. But if like, you know, hundreds of people handle it, it'll fall apart. So right. I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm never quite sure. I, I feel like the things that I choose to spend my time on are often things that are like the least marketable possible <laughs> things. Yeah, but I think it's like, again, you know, you can't, 
you you would never start a project with the intention to like make a marketable project. Yeah. You know, you just have to like do what you're interested in. But I would, yeah, I was really shocked uh, to hear from photographer friends, like the process of putting together a photo book and how different it is from like the way that you would pitch a, like a book proposal or, I mean, even it seemed to me more, requiring more labor of the photographer than even a like fiction manuscript that you have to write the whole thing on spec before you would try to get it published. You know, it's like, I remember, um, talking to a photographer friend who I was going to write, um, an essay for his book. And like, he basically had to build the book, like hire cover, you know, hire cover artists, do the, like do the whole thing and then present it to a press. Yeah. Um, and, and photography as a, an artistic, industry is sort of always like that a lot more than um than writing is i know um having talked to a lot of poets now that there are there's this huge uproar over the last few years over reading fees and sort Mm. of contest fees Um, Mm -hmm. and um and when i look at sort of you know I, i sort of looked around to see what was sort of standard for submission fees and um and I was sort of surprised because they struck me as compared to what is sort of the standard for photography submission fees, they seemed rather low to me. Mm, um, uh-huh. But <clears throat> where photography, like it's basically just a given that anytime you want to submit to anything, it's going to cost kind of a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and that it's sort of always like that all through photography where like it's, it, it you, you really have to front everything yourself and then, um, and then hope that you make some money back. Um, right. Nobody ever f- sort of um, advances you. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. I don't, um, I don't have a really deep experience with submission. Um, I think I think I tend to do things in like bursts. Mm. So it happens kind of infrequently enough that I'm like, oh, whatever, you know, 20 bucks, that doesn't seem so bad or whatever. Um but yeah, I I think if you're if you're trying much harder than I am to get, you know, like short stories published or something like that, yeah, you're probably really racking up the fees. Yeah. It's uh I don't know, it's kind of seems like a racket and people people talk a lot about that in the photo community too about how um like competition fees and submission fees tend to add up pretty quickly and nobody ends up coming out ahead except for maybe the the people that are collecting the fees i don't know right um well and then it just it has this ugly effect of like making you know art for the people who can afford to do it yeah which is already it's already hard enough to kind of squeeze that into your life yeah i think that's sort of one of the reasons why this is so prevalent in the photo industry is because um because the photo just in terms of the technical side of it requires you to spend a lot, sort of a lot more money up front yeah. in order to just have the gear. Um, it attracts a lot of people who are already fairly affluent. Um, and there's just so many people who want to do it. Um, yeah. so, I mean, I guess there's a lot of people who want to be writers too, but the upfront costs are sort of a pencil and paper, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And especially like, you know, writing is just kind of squeezing an hour in your day, to, you know, or can be as little as just, you know, squeezing an hour of your day into like writing in a notebook. You don't need to 
find a shot or compose a shot, you know, it's a lot less, a uh, lot less, a lot fewer moving parts. It can be. I mean, uh, the way I shoot tends to be you know, sort of integrated in with the rest of my life as well. But mm. definitely people who are working in studios tend to, tend to, you know, or people that are going out on prayer. I know a lot of people that will go out to like, you know, the Salton Sea or like some like abandoned factory uh, somewhere. I know there's a guy that I know in Pennsylvania who's always visiting abandoned factories and that's yeah. like his, his whole deal. Um, and he comes up with these really beautiful images. Um, but that's like, I don't know. It's just not something that I can ever quite do. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, I've been talking for kind of a long time. At this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's a, whenever I'm, I'm, I'm doing, uh, you know, my own show by myself, I always think to myself, stop, don't, don't say things. Don't, don't talk quite as much. I always get worried that I'm talking too much. Oh yeah. <laughs> so do I. And I'm always like, whenever I'm sound editing, like, you know, 70% of my edits are like me, like cutting down the like 45 second preamble I've given to just asking the freaking question. Mm. I'm just like, for God's sake, just get to the question. Um, uh, no, but I think that's what makes it a conversation. We just feel self-conscious about it. Cause we're like, oh, I've invited this person here and now I'm like taking all their time or, you know, talking yeah. about myself. Maybe they don't care. <laughs> that, that kind of thing. Um, it, it's interesting. Uh, I, that we both are so interested in these ideas of home and place. And I, I realize the more that I, uh, you know, cause then in, in the process of writing, um, of getting ready to publish an episode, you know, writing like the kind of newsletter copy and doing all and writing the social media copy and kind of really distilling what the episode is about. I find myself using the words place and identity a lot. And I'm like, Oh, clearly I am drawn Today, which I knew, you know, I knew that was kind of my thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it's funny to see all the different ways that that manifests in the guests that I ask to be on and, and the ways that they interpret those ideas and what kind of draws me to their work. Um, yeah. What, what is it about that? Do you think that is so compelling to you? About home and place? Yeah. Um, well, I think for me, it, it's just mainly that the place that I'm from is the kind of place that sort of gets into your bones. Um, you know, the Monterey Peninsula is a is an area that basically everybody that I know who, who's from there, who's an artist, um, is kind of obsessed with the place and its history. Mm. And, um, you know, Steinbeck was from there. Ansel Adams was in the Edward Weston both had, um, you know, a long part of their lives in that area. Uh -huh. Um, it, it just sort of, um, well, I mean, like when my wife and I moved to San Diego, we've lived here since Oh five. Mm -hmm. Um, I, we, we, we like it. We always say people, people always ask us, do you like it there? And we say, well, yeah, we like it here. It's, we've got a lot of friends and we like our lives, but like the place just doesn't sing mm. to us the way that home did um, mm -hmm. um and so i feel like it, it it's something that um like there's some piece of me that's that's um that that never really left that place right um but what about what about you like um yeah what about you <laughs> yeah i i think a lot of what you say resonates certainly uh everybody, all of the writers and visual artists that I know from Appalachia are obsessed with it. 
Um, I think, I think it is also one of those places that kind of gets in your bones. Um, and, and for me, I think a lot of the tension from, in my work comes from the fact that I don't really know if I want to be back there. Um, Mm. I always hedge that and kind of like never say never sort of language, but you know, it doesn't feel it, it. I can't imagine necessarily, uh, being there and, and at the same time, I feel so connected to it. And I think I just feel more connected to it not being there, actually. Mm. Um, and so just kind of trying to, like, work through that. And, um, you know, I was just talking yesterday um, to my friend Elaine Sheldon, Elaine McMillian Sheldon, who um, she and her husband just made this fantastic short documentary. It's on Netflix called Heroin, and it uh, follows three women in Huntington, West Virginia, who are battling the opioid crisis. One is a minister kind of outreach uh, woman who go, drives around at night and like, you know, gives out food to, to people. And, and another is the uh, fire chief and then another is a judge. And uh, and I just I was telling her, like, I just like low key cried the entire time. Like, it's mm. like 35 minutes. And I was just like, never not crying, you know, just but in that really passive way of just like your muscle, the muscles of your face aren't even really moving, but like tears are just coming down. And it was really resonant to me in this sense of just like, this is my place and my place is hurting, you mm-hmm. know, but but like, I don't, I don't feel the need to like go back and like, to, you know, the the ways in which I can feel that and then the ways I choose to act on it, like I'm curious about the tension between those two. I am, I'm trying not to be curious about it in a judgmental way. Um, because I do sometimes think like, okay, and what are you doing? Like, like, what are you doing about it? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, although I do think, you know, the, the novel, I think one reason that I've kind of been able to feel more, cause, cause I mean, frankly, like going in that direction has been kind of horrifying for me. Um, but one thing that started to, to make it feel a little bit more natural is to just see the ways in which it allows all of these things that I do have to say about the place to come out in ways that, you know, for, for me, for whatever reason, my nonfiction, that just wasn't happening, um, Mm. or wasn't happening as fully. Uh, yeah. So I think it's that kind of, that idea of a sort of like connection from afar and like what that means and how that even happens it seems like such a strange it seems like it shouldn't be true you know Hmm. one of the things that really struck me when i would you know because i've I've mostly of yours read your nonfiction um pieces uh whether they were sort of more editorial or more um you know reporting type pieces Uh um but you do write a lot about um about Appalachia and, and, you know, thinking about the way that you write about the, you know, what I've read of yours, that's, that's about Appalachia and thinking about the photographers that I know who are working in that region. Um, like, um, Roger May, for example, or, um, Aaron Blum, who I know is also Mm -hmm. a friend of yours, um, that I, I get this sense, um, that, um, that there's that, that there's this sort of powerful urge for a lot of Appalachian people to sort of want to explain the region to other people, Mm -hmm. that it seems like it's a very misunderstood and obviously very stereotyped area. 
um, people have these ideas. And most of the time when a lot of the images that we see photographically, at least coming out of that area are very stereotyped and very, um, you know, made by outsiders. And so, you know, like I know Roger has had a lot of, um, I don't know if beef is quite the right word, but you know, he's had some, some debates with, uh, you know, about some certain other photographers and how they represent the area. Um, and, but it seems to me that that also has like a sort of a bearing on like this feeling of being marginalized in that way. It seems Mm -hmm. like has a big impact on, on anyone who feels marginalized. It has a big impact on how they construct their identity. That always seems like a real through line for a lot of, of the work of yours that I've seen. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think like, um, I think, you know, just similar to the point that you made earlier about kind of seeing yourself in, in other art and art you haven't made, I think, um, there's, I had not, I think I, I am only recently aware of the degree to which I as like, just want to like be seen as a human person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and I think that for a long time, you know, I mean, journalism was kind of the opposite of that, right? Like I'm sort of hiding in that genre. Mm. It's that's all that puts the focus on other people. Um, and then I think kind of, again, kind of coming back to that, I the authority idea for me, it's sort of saying like, okay, well, I have things I want to say and, and I, and I want to say them. And I think that I have something worth telling you. Um, for me has taken like a long time to think like, that's okay. (laughs) I don't know. I'm sure there are all sorts of reasons, uh, why, why that might be, but I think that's totally true. I think that there's a lot, and I think Aaron's work does this tremendously. There's just this idea of like, okay, yeah, that stuff exists, but also, you know, like Aaron grew up and I think he grew up in a family of doctors and like a pretty affluent town, you know, he's just like, this was not my experience. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not invalidating that experience. I'm just trying to complicate it a little bit. Um, like I joked uh, on the episode I did with Celeste Ng that like we were talking about this idea of the the need for kind of multiple narratives for for marginalized people to have not just kind of one defining narrative. And and I said that I've been joking that I want to make a T-shirt that says "Ask me about hillbilly elegy" because I'm just so tired <laughs> of like when you said of having to be like, I mean, okay, okay, but also, you know, yeah. Oh man, I still I think so over Thanksgiving somebody was talking about that book and I just... It's uh, people are always <laughs> talking about I had to stop myself from like interrupting strangers in a bookstore. I was in I was in New York last week and I or a couple weeks ago visiting friends and and I was at my friend's neighborhood bookstore and I overheard these two women talking about it and I was like I should be quiet, right? And she was like, "You <laughs> should absolutely be quiet." <laughs> oh I think, but you know, I think one of the things about that, the thing that you said, you know, wanting to be seen as a human being is such a powerful thing. And, and especially when it's not something that you have a lot of experience with that, you know, like, you know, whether for me, it's like, you know, not seeing Asians represented in Mm -hmm. popular media very often. And I'm sure that it's a very similar experience for, um, you know, for Appalachia, not seeing, you know, if all you ever see is stereotypes, then finding someone who can do it sensitively um, has got to be a very powerful thing. And and I always find the more I see other people doing things that, that I, that, that I feel like represent my experience well, the more I want to and feel um, empowered to, to tell my own story. Absolutely. Um, to kind of like add to that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. <laughs> um, I was I was just going to say that I was really uh, that it was really striking listening to your conversation with Celeste. Um, your reaction to everything I never told you, and and it made me think about um, like coming to it from that perspective. Because you know, I of course was just like reading it as a white woman, and what do I know about it? And to to kind of give it that ad, that added layer of meaning yeah. um, I thought was very powerful. Oh, God, that book hit me so much. <laughs> Just love it to bits. Oh, and I love Celeste. She's so great. Um, yeah, I had a really great time talking to her. Yeah. Um, I I mean, and the, the other thing that you were saying just now about, um, about sort of not feeling um, allowed maybe to, to tell your, your own story. I think that there's this really powerful way that, um, you know, if I, I know that it is off, it is completely this way for women. It is often this way for people of color. Um, and, and, you know, throwing in sort of a, you know, geographically marginalized region, um, that there's a way that you, that the world, um, the majority world kind of wants you to make yourself small and sort of convinces yeah. you that you ought to do that. Um, for me, it's always a struggle. You know, like I always really, I never feel like, uh, like anybody, um, like I have any right to say anything, but mm. somehow, I don't know. I don't, I always feel that way, but somehow I always end up saying things anyway. I don't really. And then feeling bad about it. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, that, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> Do you feel like, um, wh what, what about, you know, your experience do you kind of feel is, uh, is, it, it, are you most interested in kind of speaking up about and complicating and feeling like, you know, you see in a very limited way, see presented in a very limited way otherwise? Well, you know, what's interesting for me is that, um, um, I think hmm, this is kind of a complicated thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like that it sounded like you said that through like gritted teeth. Yeah. Like it. it um, one of the things you know, you mentioned, um, you know, Celeste and 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 there's other um, sort of Asian American narratives that have really um, hit home with me over the past few years. Um, but in a lot of ways, I don't feel entitled to sort of engage with that aspect of my identity because of the way that I'm very many generations removed from the immigrant generation. Mm. Um, my family has been in the United States since the 1880s. Um, and where did they come from? Well, from Japan. Mm -hmm. um, well, three quarters of my family came from Japan. One quarter of my family is Caucasian. Mm -hmm. Um and that's the other thing too is be, is that um also not being completely japanese um that's also sort of a, a layer of remove and separation from mm. the asian american community it can mm -hmm. be at least japanese people are often very concerned with or at least in the past when i was growing up were often very concerned with sort of a racial purity mm. um but so I, I you know because i grew up very american i often don't feel able to speak to very Asian themes and sort of cultural, uh, touchstones. Um, but I think if there's anything 
you know, seeing those stories is very important to me. I think maybe if there's anything that I want to talk more about is sort of that betweenness yeah. um, of being mixed race and being um, culturally between. I know that's something that a lot of, um, you know, fully um, genetically Asian people feel, um, even if they're maybe only second generation. But I think there might be something a little specific to the mixed race or, you know, um, many generational diasporic uh, experience that might be a, a little, I don't know, specific. And I, and it's always those things that are very specific that I'm sort of more interested in. Um, yeah. But then again, I also always wonder like how much of this is, is because of my um, ethnicity or mixedness and how much of this is just because it's me. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Do you, do you feel like seeing, you know, having experiences with other works like reading everything I never told you, do you think that those things kind of personally, each one by one sort of give you a little bit more of a like, okay, it's okay for me to talk about this? Um, yes and no. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm often thinking about too is that I am very cognizant of the fact that in most ways, in many ways, I am a very privileged person, um, mm. that, you know, like I'm an engineer, I make a good living. Um, we didn't grow up with a lot of money, but, um, I do okay now. And, um, obviously I'm a man, um, I'm straight. And, you know, those are a lot of things that, um, they, they make me want to, um, make me aware of the ways in which I benefit from that. And, and, and I feel a certain responsibility to spend less time, um, telling my own story and, and, and trying more to find other people who I can, um, try and find ways to, to spread their message a little more, mm -hmm. which is something that the show offers me an opportunity to do. I feel is something that's important to me. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What about you? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I, I think, you know, cause even just hearing what you just said, you know, I, I do have, I have my own version of that. That is, um, you know, I feel like Appalachia is a very, is very much rooted in history and is very much about people whose families have been on their land for generations. And, you know, I'm, that's not my story. And, and especially as I got more, I saw this more and more as I got involved in the food culture, which is, I mean, tremendously welcoming and, and wonderful, but you know, like, I don't like a lot of those, I just don't have the, the, the same vernacular, you know, I just didn't grow up with the same things that I'm now a part of celebrating and preserving. And I'm, I'm, I, you know, love them in a sense, but not in the same sense. Um, mm. So I, I think that, yeah, I, I hear that stuff and just think like, okay, everybody, a lot, or a lot of people are struggling with this, with the same sense of like self permission. And it's kind of similar to the message that I keep getting, you know, I've been thinking a lot about like why I started the podcast, which is something that I would love to hear you talk about too. But I think, cause I think for a long time I didn't know. And I think for a long time I thought it was, um, oh, well, you know, I'm in Detroit now and I don't feel like I have as strong of a writer community around me as I did. You know, we moved here from New York as I did in New York. And, and I think part of that's true. But I think 
also I had started doing this really scary to me thing. I had started working on this novel. It was unlike any of the writing that I had done or trained myself, you know, been trained to do. And I was just like, how do I do this? Maybe I'll just start calling people and asking them how they did it. (laughs) And I think that really like it has kind of become that for me of just sort of hearing people's situations and thinking like just constantly being confronted with the things we're all trying to fight and tamp down that we can, you know, shut up enough so that we can get on with our work. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that for me. Um, you know, I, I started the show, um, the, so a lot of the guests that I have on the show are people that I, I either found out about or met at the medium festival of photography, which is, um, it's an annual photography festival that happens here in San Diego. Um, it was just in October and it's like my favorite thing that happens in San Diego. Um, and I, I, I was really lucky to, I, uh, to, to be able to, um, start going to it the first year and I've been every year, but one, um, and I've gotten to be friends with the director of the festival who I even got to talk to on the show. He's an excellent, amazing photographer named Scott Davis, Scott B Davis. Um, but what I would find is that I'd have these conversations because, uh, the way the festival works is the first, it's a four day festival. The first two days are portfolio reviews and the second two days are artist lectures. Mm. And, um, there's this thing that happens when you've got like 60 or so, uh, photographers all carrying their portfolio boxes and, you know, um, waiting for their next session in the lobby of this hotel. And you just sort of wind up sitting around, you meet people, you end up going to lunch with them and you have these conversations that are just like the best conversations you get to have all year, or at least for me, because I only go to the one festival. Unlike some people, they go four or five festivals a year. I can't afford to do that. But, um, um, you know, these conversations would be just like these amazing conversations about art that I never get to have any other time during the year. Right. Um, because I, up until fairly recently, I didn't know that many artists in San Diego, so I didn't really get to connect with anybody that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, so like I, on, on the one hand, I, I was, I, this thing that you were saying about you know, wanting to have a community, um, and doing that through the show, I think that was a big part of it to start with. But I feel like as I've gone on, it's sort of developed into two other things, which one would be, which I sort of mentioned before that there's this idea that I have of wanting to help other people and wanting Mm -hmm. to get other people's work and message out, you know, even, I I can't say that my show is like a top 10 show where like I'm necessarily going to be making anybody's career, but any little thing I can do to help is something Mm -hmm. that I feel is very important. But then also what I realized too, is that uh, just like I was saying before that how I'm always talking about that point of connection, that point of recognition and feeling a little less alone Mm -hmm. that um, in talking to these other artists, I get, something like that for myself um, right. that I'm seeing is just like what you were saying about how you get to see other people going through this very same kind of things that you're going through. Um, even people who, you know, I might've been intimidated to talk to. Sure. Um, yeah. And that has been very 
um, you know, sort of revelatory and, and gratifying for me as just a participant in the conversation. But then also I, f I feel like if I'm able to provide that to the listener as well, who I have to assume that most of the people that are listening to my show are, are artists or are at least artist adjacent. Um, right. so having, being able to, to get that to them and maybe provide that experience for them is also something that I, I sort of care about. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Have you, this is kind of a, a nuts and bolts podcasting question, but have you done much like research into your audience? You know, have you done like surveys or anything like that? No, I have yeah. not. I'm almost a little scared to do it. <laughs> I know. I've been wondering, I've been wondering about it lately. Um, cause I'm trying to ramp up a little bit, like, cause you know, doing it all on your own. Um, I mean, this is something I know we've talked about before, but like, by the time it's time to like promote the thing, I'm just like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> like sometimes I'll just like forget to, and I'm not, I'm not great at social media. Like, you know, I'm, I like get on Facebook as little as I possibly can. Like I'm, I, I like Twitter, but well, right now Twitter gives me anxiety and I can't really deal with it. But, um, <laughs> generally Twitter I would be more okay with. But so like I, I'm kind of calling in favors from friends who, uh, you know, specialize in these sorts of things and will let me pay them ridiculously small sums of money to help out um, uh, to like grow that side of it. Cause I just want to know more about like who's out there listening to it and what they, you know, what they want. Um, and, and I, I feel like, too, is something that I've been interested in. And I think this comes back to our uh, mutual worry about talking too much uh, on any given episode, is that I think that the more we open up about, like, ourselves and the sort of reasons that we're doing the show, I think the more openings you give people to connect with it. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, for a long time, I kind of wanted to be, like... I don't know. Just like I was, or I don't, I don't know. I just wasn't ready to do that. But mm -hmm. I think I'm coming around to the idea of like, you know, kind of saying like, well, this is why I started doing this. I started doing this because I was writing this novel and I wanted to talk to other novelists and have them tell me, even as I'm saying the phrase other novelists, like the like editor asshole voice in my head is like, you're not, enough. shut up. That's not, <laughs> that's not what you mean. You can't say that, you know, but just like stuff like that, just like be honest about that stuff is something, I guess it all really comes down to vulnerability, which is something that I have a problem with and I'm yeah. needing to, you know, which is stupid when you think about what writing is like you, you're making yourself vulnerable every time. So just, make peace with it yeah but i mean it's a different it's a different uh sort of vector on vulnerability vulnerability yeah. i guess you know so it makes sense to me um yeah i i think you know when i was sort of thinking about what i wanted my show to be um because i listen to so many podcasts and there are many that that are that i listen to that are very produced and some mm -hmm. that are very um you know um you know, sort of more traditional interview where the, the host is not very uh, visible, I guess. Yeah. And I always kept coming back to, um, Mark Maron and, mm. um, you know, not to say that like, I, I don't, there's a lot of things that Mark Maron does that I find a little, um, grating, sure. but, <laughs> but <laughs> one of the things that I often thought about with Maron is how, um, you know, a lot of times, uh, especially in the early part of his show, 
he would be talking to people. I'd have no idea who they were. Um, and so what would the draw be like, why do I want to listen to this? But I found that I kept listening even, and mostly just because I was listening to him. Right. Um, and, and actually now that he's tending to, um, talk to more famous people, I find I'm less interested in his show. Mm. Um, and I feel like he, like now that his persona is a little more settled, I guess, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm a little less interested, but that was something I sort of very self-consciously, tried to think about how I could, um, not in a cynical way, but just like, how can I sort of inject bits of myself into the show, which is also a reason right. why I do the personal monologue at the beginning, Yeah, which is also something I stole from Marin. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I, yeah, I talked to my wife about that. That was something that she, I was like, eh, I don't know. It feels a little self-indulgent. Like, I, I don't know. And and she was saying, well, you know, I mean, you know, maybe this would be a sort of a through line that, you know, if, if people are, are there to listen to you, then it, even if they don't know the artist, that they might still hang around. Right. And I hope that's true. Although the idea that anybody would want to listen to what I have to say is something that seems very strange to me. <laughs> right. No, but so this is a thing that I think, like, I mean, not to put my stuff on you but I think that that saying that is like you know how earlier we were talking about um oh hell I don't think this is exactly what we were saying but in my mind what I was likening it to was this conversation I had with a friend where like someone had asked me if I was risk averse and I said that I thought I was highly risk averse and my friend was like no you're not you take risks all the time and it kind of like made me re like re evaluate and think like oh i i actually do and i think that like the idea of which i'm 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 totally with you on this but this i this feeling of like nobody could care what i have to say but i'm gonna host this show anyway like i i think there is a part of us of you of me that is like well but somebody somebody does (laughs) you know (laughs) like i think that that's what like I don't know. I think there's that there's that urge to communicate and some part of us is okay with that. Yeah. I think I think you know I would have tended to think of myself as the sort of risk averse. It's like the sort of the joke between me and my wife that like um I'm always the one who says who's coming up with reasons why we can't do things. Right. Right. Um um and she's always the one with the bigger ideas. Uh <laughs> But then, like you say, I, I have all of these things that I that I just sort of threw myself into. Right. Um, I I feel like I might have come at it with a. It, it, um, it's sort of I'm not sure whether it comes from the idea that somewhere inside myself I do believe that people are gonna listen, or more that I just sort of think, well nobody's probably going to listen, but I'm going going to be okay with that anyway. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the, the act is more important than whether anybody cares or not. Yeah. I will say that it was something that having this sort of attitude that, well, no one is going to look at it anyway, um, really sort of freed me up um, with my photography to to make work that really... Um, that I wanted to make and that, yeah. and that doing that, finding that freedom 
to do exactly the the kind of work that I wanted to do and stop thinking about what a critic might say. Like in my early work, a lot of times I, f- uh, I was really responding to what reviewers would tell me when I would do mm. a portfolio review. And what I found was that just like that ended up, the work felt very hollow, but, f- but, but getting to this place where I'm like, well, uh, probably no one's going to see it. So I might as well just do the thing I want to do. Um, that has actually opened me up to some newer opportunities where people are actually liking the work, which is sort of almost paradoxical, I guess. I don't know, but um, it felt a little strange to like sort of give up on people liking it and made people like it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that I've actually been thinking about a lot lately because I feel like it kind of keeps getting um, repeated around me. And I'm kind of of the belief that like, you will keep hearing, you know, the things you need to hear when you need to hear them, that kind of thing. Um, and I remember when I talked to Hanif Abdurkeeb, he was talking about going to, he went to Provincetown to just like write by himself for, you know, however many days. And he said that it was so liberating that he would write things and not save them. Hmm. And I was like, oh, that's horrifying. <laughs> and then, like, never. Never. Why? What's the point? And then um, I, this has surely come up on the show um, because I talk about it all the time, but I'm a big David Lynch fan and I've been reading this book, this book length kind of interview, series of interviews with him. um, And he talks about the same idea of like, it would be so great if I could make movies that I didn't have to release. Um, And so I think that like, I think that there's some part of that lesson that I like still need to learn. And I think, uh, you know, to like, uh, armchair analyze myself it's probably divorcing myself from my from like uh the ideas that I have about external validation and like what that means to what I'm doing and why I'm doing it yeah uh I think that's I think that's a like beautiful healthy place to be I I love that you um have hit on that for yourself I think you know I think external validation is something that all of us especially artists uh contend with um a lot as like to how much of our sense of self it it ought to um inform um but the like the the struggle i i i went through a period where i was like well you know if i'm divorcing myself from needing external validation am i do i really even need to show the work anymore do i Mm. or but what i came to eventually was um that i get so much out of um, seeing other people's work or reading other people's work that I, that I, that when it means something to me, um, and maybe if I admitted that my work had some value that, um, I could admit that it, my work might have, might be able to give that experience to somebody else, um, which seems like a very arrogant thing to, to say, but I understand that. Yeah. You know, Every once in a while, I actually have had somebody sort of breathlessly, you know, admire something I did, which, like, I never quite know how to react, but it's always, I, I mean, it, those are the things that sound, well, maybe I should keep keep showing the work, um, you know, I don't know, I keep keep going back and forth on it, but hopefully it's doing something good for the world. Yeah, yeah, Um yeah, I agree with that completely. That idea of uh, like the work has value and like I don't know that that is necessarily like a personal 
commentary. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the other the other lesson that I keep repeating to myself because I don't know that I've absorbed it yet is a uh, a friend of mine who um, you know kind of very sweetly let me have these sort of like neurotic like moments of of expressing all of these worries and doubts and fears and then she'll go okay also it's not about you like she treats the work like the work is a very you know is its own thing and you are playing that part in it but Mm. it is not a reflection of you and thinking of it that way or you know obviously in some sense it is but like you thinking of it that way is damaging to it yeah yeah that's very wise yeah it is it's obnoxiously wise (laughs) Uh, um. so um you know as you had pointed out we each end our shows the same way by asking people the same question each time um so my question to you is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now um to me uh creative satisfaction mainly looks like having the time to create something Um, that right now I find myself always just moving from one thing to the next, whether I have some, you know, I might be meeting my congressman one day to like, you know, put pressure on him to do the right thing, or I might, you know, be at work or I might be with my family or am I, and you know, all those things are important, but I never quite feel like I have enough time to both make stuff still and sleep and take care of my health. So right. just, just, just being able to, to find the time to do something that, that is, I think where I would find the satisfaction. How about you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I've been, as I've been working on this sample for these applications and that has taken this little chunk of the novel that is mostly, you know, which is a project that is mostly in a very rough draft state and just sort of like really fine tuning it. And in the process of that, I have started to like, um, really understand what the story is. And I've, and the, the kind of energy that that's brought to the process for me, just kind of feeling like I know where I am, uh, has been really incredible. So I think, you know, a theme that I've touched on in a few different ways throughout our conversation, like that idea of um, letting yourself off the hook a little bit and being, and just sort of like recognizing what an, you know, cause there are moments when I'm, when I'm writing that I'm just like, this is so fucking cool. You know, like I can't, (laughs) this is so much fun. I can't believe that I'm like doing this. Um, And I think the, the more I hold on to that and the less I get out of my own head, uh, I think that's a good place to start for me. That sounds amazing. I, I wish I could have <laughs> experience <laughs> Don't like that we too. All. I'll figure it out and I'll bottle it for us all. Yeah. Well, so, uh, the last question that I always ask is, uh, whether there's a piece of art or literature or general creativity that you've experienced recently that meant something to you. Yes. So I just finished, uh, literally just before we talked, because I wanted to be able to finish so that I could talk about it, uh, this book Pond by Claire Louise Bennett. Have you heard of this? I have heard of it. I I think Celeste actually mentioned it to me once. Oh, okay. But I... Not on on the episode, but yeah. yeah, So I I had seen it on 
book table book, on tables and bookstores a couple times because it's got it's got this really gorgeous cover, um, which is a detail of some beautiful piece of art, and it is a. Um, I don't really know like if you would call it a novel or a, a linked story collection or novel and stories or whatever the actual like term for it would be. But it's basically a series of short vignettes about this woman who lives in this cottage kind of like I think I think it maybe like the western coast of Ireland is where at some point you you figure out she is and and it's just such a fascinating, like it's so psychologically astute and it makes such great material out of tiny, tiny everyday things by kind of making them more or less the scope of this woman's experience. Mm. And and it, it was really fascinating to me as a reader too, just like the, um, you know, because every, everything sort of shows you like how it wants to be engaged with, I mm. think. And like, this was a, it was challenging, not necessarily in a degree of difficulty way, which is not to say that it's like frivolous or anything like that, but you know, it's challenging in the sense of like, she's, you get the sense that like, she's very forthcoming about some things and not at all forthcoming about other things and, and kind of learning how to engage with that person who I at first like, wasn't really crazy about and then I found myself, you know, I put the book down and then just kind of found myself thinking about it in a, in a just sort of like abstract and moody way of just like, I want to go back to this place. Mm. Uh, and I think it's a really, it's a really cool thing that she's done to, to make that, to make that stick. Mm. Do you find as a writer that when you read something, um, that you like ever want to sort of take it apart and sort of see how it ticks or, or that, that. I don't know. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I should probably actually act on that more than I do, but, but yeah, no, I, I do have that, um, have that like kind of like, how can, like, what are the, what's the, what's the stitching in here? How can I see how this happened? Yeah. yeah. How about you? Uh, so the thing that I, um, have been reading recently that has been really uh, grabbing me are um, I've been going back and reading as much of the bibliography of um, Amal El Motar. I think that's how you say her name as I can find. Um, she's uh, as far as I know, she doesn't have any novels yet, but she's written a bunch of short stories. She's a mm. speculative fiction writer. Um, and I just find like the word that I always want to use for her stories is lovely. They're just mm. lovely. And, um, I feel a little weird about describing them as lovely because they're not necessarily easy. You know, a lot of times she's writing from a place where you can tell that she's writing from a place of rage, but even at that, there's just something that she does with language, with characters that she has such sensitivity for her characters and she presents them um, like the emotional reality of her characters is just breathtaking. Um, and I often include them. I do a little roundup every, every Friday of stuff that, that mattered to me that week. Um, and on her stories often find their way into there. And every mm -hmm. time I put one of her stories in, those are the ones that get the comments from other people. They're like, Oh, that was amazing. And I agree. <laughs> wow i'm gonna check her out that sounds wonderful yeah yeah if you're into you know um specular fiction um you know mostly she writes fantasy or fantastic stories sometimes 
second world fantasy sometimes uh fantastic takes on on our world but um they're just lovely stories so yeah highly recommend okay so that was my conversation with courtney ballastier wasn't that great i don't know i think it was pretty great i uh really enjoyed talking with courtney if you'd like to check out more of WMFA, which I highly recommend, you can find a full archive at WMFAPodcast.com. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And uh, you can also find more of Courtney's writing at CourtneyBallastier.com, and I've put links to all of that in the show notes. And that is our show. As always, I welcome all of your questions and comments. You can get me by email at podcast at keepthechannelopen.com. You can also follow me in the show on Twitter at channelopenpod or on Facebook at facebook.com slash keepthechannelopen. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you'd like to support the show, check out our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash sake river. That's patreon.com slash sake river, sake like the drink, and river like river. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can find more of his music available for licensing at soundofpicture.com. Next time, I'll be talking with photographer Daniel Gonsalves, so be sure to come back for that one. Until then, remember, keep the channel open. (laughs) ¶¶